Football. Maybe have more room for your uh, workout for your for the workshop. Okay. So they were open last night when we checked them. Did you check all the workshops? How did they go? Like Joseph said, he had standing room only. I had people standing room only. Mm -hmm. Chad said his was loaded. Oh. And so I don't know how that happened. Okay. And so, but they'll be open, and I might move. (coughs) Depend on what's going to be the largest one, I might move one of them in here. That's probably a good idea. Yeah. Whatever you think. Hey, I am. All right. Yeah. Thanks for the moral support. Absolutely. <laughs> you are ready to go. Um, it's going to be hard getting people in these rooms. Really? How come? Oh, man. Just so much social activity? Yeah. Hopefully it doesn't take that long. My goodness. Teaching for a full hour. Like, pretty sure Jesus did that, but the rest of us are. Yeah. All right. (coughs) Well, it's my treat to be here. Um, I won't make any Bethlehem Baptist jokes or how many sermons I've seen with this view alone. But anyways, it's a treat to be in Minnesota. Tom picked us up yesterday. I thought I was in a foreign country compared to the last time I was here. Um, It was one of those 20 below weeks when I was here last. And yeah, it's much more friendly in June. But anyways, glad to be here. I wanted to thank Engage Global. Uh, I know that there's some of them are out there, but I know that you guys have put a lot of work into this. We really appreciate the ministry that's going on there. It's neat to hear uh, just how that program has grown and just seeing its progression full from what I've heard for this entire year and then heading into next year already fully booked up for the first part of the year as well. So thank you to Engage Global. Man, we're really thankful to see partners that understand the great commission and the value of getting people trained and sent off to the mission field. So thank you guys, and thank you to the Bethlehem Baptist guys for letting us use these facilities. Very nice of you guys. Um, Yeah, incredible. And we get to fill this up with people that are looking at trying to be impacted by the great commission. This morning, uh, I want to focus on certain aspects. Uh, Chad set the table really well, but certain aspects that we're looking at in missions. Radius exists for three reasons. We have three primary goals that we're after as an organization. The first is we teach and train gospel workers that are wanting to go to the last unreached, unengaged people groups. We would say language groups, looking for those particular people groups and getting people there. That's our primary job. That's our primary thrust that we have as an organization. But secondarily, we help educate churches, getting churches up to speed on current missiology, current issues, things that are happening in the missions world. That's our secondary goal. And then the third one is we work to change and inform the current missions discussion. You're going to hear a lot of things about the current state of missions. These aren't things that are made up. These are things that are current, that are happening, and that churches that love Jesus Christ unwittingly get tied into at times. 
And we're trying to inform that discussion, maybe bringing it back to where we would see as a more biblical approach to getting the gospel to those last places. So those are the three primary goals. And those final two reasons are the main thrust of what we are doing here today, to inform churches and to speak into that missions discussion. We have the RADIUS report. We always have an open door for potential students and pastors to come down at RADIUS, family members, not so. Once your missionaries are down there, we're getting them trained, and we don't have family members come on a regular basis. But getting people down to RADIUS is one of the best avenues. But the RADIUS report as well. So I just want to put a little plug in for that. It's on the sign-up sheet on the back there. If you want to be informed other than this conference, sign up for that, and you can get yourself informed there. I was in Canada about a year, no, excuse me, it was less than that. It was about three months ago. And I was speaking with a foundation. Yeah, everything's a blur. Trust me, the last four weeks have been just one massive blur. You can ask the radius students that just graduated on Friday. Um, and I was speaking to this foundation, and one of the people on the foundation, a woman, she asked a really important question. And she asked this, what are some things that people don't like about radius? We're talking a lot about what we do like about radius. What are some things, what are some knocks on radius? Some things that people would have questions about. And the easy ones, the little ones, are that the campus is in a somewhat difficult city. That causes some people to choke a little bit, knowing that there's some bad publicity out there on where our, sit, where our campus is located. We make students do early morning workouts. If you're not used to getting up at 6 o'clock and doing calisthenics, where's Joe? He's the best Navy SEAL out there. Um, that's going to be tough. And then we take away your internet for the first semester. That's tough sometimes for people. They, they have a hard go with that one. But the, the, the four primary ones that I would say would be more well-grounded uh, would be this. Number one, we focus too much on language and culture fluency. Most missionaries and missions agencies feel fluency is great, but ultimately optional. When the Spirit chooses to move, He will move, with or without someone who can speak at a high level in that language. That's the typical rationale. That's a knock on what we teach down there. Number two, we are too strong on suffering and the difficulty the job will take. Yes, missions can be tough, but the majority of missionaries are only staying two to four years, so there's no sense in getting them riled up about talks with Adoniram Judson or John Patton. Missions has changed for our time. It's not what it used to be. Stop talking about suffering so much. Number three, we are too stringent in our definition of a church. Jesus said that when two or more are gathered together in my name, I am there. So church is really where the believers are gathered. Qualified church leaders, public identification as believers can have serious downsides. We need to be more broad in the way that we define church. Stop defining church so narrowly. And then the last one, the one that I'm going to address today in my talk that I've got with you guys is this one. We are the guys who like to take the long path. Radius likes to take the long way towards seeing churches planted. Today there is short-cycle church planning, rapid evangelism, disciple-making movements, and rabbit churches, not elephant churches. This is a quote off of one of the websites, and one of the proponents for rabbit churches says this, Elephants take three years to produce one offspring. Rabbits can produce 50,000 rabbits in the same time. So what would you like to plant? A slow, plodding elephant church that takes three years to produce one? Or rabbit churches where the numbers are in the thousands? But here's the problem with rabbit churches. They're easy prey for wolves. Rabbits get chewed up by wolves. Elephants don't. And here's the bigger concern. Rabbits produce more rabbits. If you believe rabbit churches to be healthy representations of biblical church planting, that's great. But if these are quickly planted churches are prone to believing a false gospel, no little of New Testament church as it is taught, if it has few 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 leaders, then these rabbit churches producing any offspring is a frightening proposition. Like produces like. Ravi Zacharias says this, what you win them with, you win them too. The methodology that you were brought to Christ, you most likely will replicate that same methodology. Rabbit churches will produce rabbit churches. They won't produce elephants. They will produce the same thing that they were produced by. But remember this too, Jesus spent three years with his disciples, night and day, discipling, teaching, training, to get them to the point where they were able to stand on their own. Paul himself stayed in Corinth one and a half years discipling them. In Ephesus, three and a half years working with the church there, pleading, exhorting, 
discipling, teaching. And remember, in each of these locations, Paul knew the language and culture of the people he was ministering to. Paul didn't have to learn a second and a third language. He had those tools already. For the cross-cultural ambassador today, those of you guys that were in my last session, you know that if you're going to take the gospel to an unreached, unengaged people group in 2018, you're going to have to learn two languages. Paul didn't have to do that. Today in missions, we hear so much about speed, movements, the Holy Spirit is on the move, and what is working. I would submit to you that missions today is animated by three primary principles. Number one, pragmatism. Building a church planning philosophy off of what works. What will get the church planted? Mysticism, or a version of mysticism, the implicit, sometimes explicit assumption that the Holy Spirit works differently over there. He doesn't work that way in Minneapolis. We never see him work that way in San Diego. But over there, he works differently. The Holy Spirit's on the move. God is on the move. Chad will address those two tomorrow, but the one that I'm going to talk about more today that's tied into this session is the third principle that's animating missions in many ways today, and that's speed. Speed at all costs. Speed because faster is always better. We want the gospel going out as far as possible, as fast as possible. Who doesn't want that? Man, I want that. But if we're seeing true mature church believers and true new church, are we seeing true New Testament churches planted and discipled believers brought into the family of God or are we seeing something different? So I'm going to address this speed methodology and it is not some fringe element of church planning today. It's the head and shoulders dominant methodology today. This methodology is encapsulated in the idea that believers will become come into being in process from becoming believers to becoming a mature church and that process will be quite rapid. Some will say that it will happen in a couple years. Some will say that it will happen in a couple months. Many will say that this can happen in a number of weeks. From believers to a mature church leader that is ready to replicate himself happening in an incredibly fast rate of time. But I don't believe we see that in Scripture. I don't believe speed was ever a guiding principle for the Apostle Paul or for Jesus. Quite the opposite. I believe that Scripture teaches that Paul staked his methodology on the careful, patient, persistent teaching of the Word of God by qualified teachers to see people saved, disciples made, and mature churches planted. Ephesians 4.11 says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul is saying that God gave his gifts to the church, teachers, evangelists, apostles, to see us brought into maturity. Without them, read in there as well, missionaries. Without them, without the exercise of their gifts, the new believers will remain children in the faith, tossed about by every doctrine that comes in. Every new idea, new believers, biting down. We used to, the Yembies used to have this terminology. We had a certain fish that swam in the river, and it was called a teeth fish. And at dry season, when the water would recede, the teeth fish would eat about anything. It was the best fishing around. You could throw it out. It was my kind of fishing. I loathe fishing, except for this kind of fishing, where you throw anything in the water, teeth fish clamps down on it. We're raising teeth fish churches, biting down on anything that's thrown in the water, raising them up. This isn't the picture of a strong, mature church. It's much more the look of a weak, anemic church that has not been taught to maturity or discipled to, point to, to the point to where it can defend itself. Colossians 1.27 says this, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I use all of my energy to teach, to bring them to maturity, 
to disciple them, to present everyone mature before Christ. This is what we're looking for, to see a strong New Testament church that is self-teaching, self-disciplining, self-educating, and self-led. To get a church to that point, my friends, does not take days. It doesn't take weeks. It doesn't take months. It takes years. Look at your own context. Look at your own life, your own history. But remember, for our time today, <clears throat> these are common things. So today I want to walk through in a very practical way. I'm going to get it down as practical as I can how we planted a church among an unreached, unengaged people group called the Yembe Yembe in the country where we worked of Papua New Guinea and talk through this on a practical level. It took us six years from the time that they were believers to the point to where we were getting on that airplane and leaving that location. Six years to where we were able to name elders and deacons and to walk away from them knowing that we had fulfilled our duty. We had taught through the New Testament. We had raised them up to the point to where they were mature and ready. Did they have problems? Absolutely. Were they fully complete? No. But they were ready to stand on their own. They were a New Testament church with all the marks of it. But I want to put two things, two thoughts in your head. Number one, the principles are what we're after today. Don't fall into the trap of, well, that was Papua New Guinea. That was Yembe Yembe. That's tribal. A lot of guys will go after that. Well, that's a certain situation. We're not going after the particulars. Most of the people groups are not going to look exactly like the Yembyembys that are left today. They're going to look very different. There's going to have to be a business component. I readily admit that. But go for the principles. The principles are universal. They're the same. I've seen these principles worked out in India, in Mozambique, in different parts of Indonesia. The principles are what we're after. So remember that. Don't get fallen into the trap of, well, that's tribal. Hmm. Go for the principles. Number two, think about your own path as we talk through where we took the Yembe Yembes from the day that they were brand new believers to the point where we got on that airplane and left. Think through your own path. See if what we teach resonates with you and your own experience. I would venture to guess that most of you, like myself, took years to see the marks of maturity. that's the case, why would it be any different overseas? A lot of people have this misguided assumption that something happens on the airplane ride over that changes people on the other side. Somehow the believers on the other side of the ocean are able to mature much more rapidly than they would in Davenport, Iowa. Much more rapidly than they would in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Something's different over there. Mm. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same Scripture. It's the same God and Father of us all. It's the same in every context. And so don't fall into this idea, well, it's different over there. It's not. It's the same. So again, as much, uh, I'm going to try and be as practical as possible. And each one of these areas, I'm going to break this down into four particular areas. Each one of these areas could be an hour-long session. And the other little caveat I want to put on this is we made mistakes. There's, the presentation is going to look like, wow, we just did it textbook and everything popped out great. We made mistakes. For you to know the mistakes, you need to be a student at Radius, and then you can find out what we screwed up because we did screw up quite a few things, and we had to go back and fix some things. But in general, this was the process that we went after to see believers brought to the point to where they were mature, ready to stand on their own with biblical elders and deacons in place to teach that body and to continue it moving forward. So, anyways, here we go. Hopefully I got this thing to go. Wrong button. No? Maybe? What am I doing wrong, Carl? We'll figure this out. Okay, the first slide is supposed to pop up. All right, we're reloading that. Okay, the first slide, um, when it pops up, is titled Newborn Heretics. Newborn Heretics. When you have baby believers, you do not have people that are ready to share their faith. They do not, they haven't been discipled in things, they haven't gone through enough experience in the scriptures, and they haven't been taught enough. Newborn Heretics. This is our first, uh, this was our church, was there, there it is, 
Uh, these were some of the early guys. We had about 40 to 50 out of about a, roughly 1,000 people among the tribal location where we were at. About 40 or 50 accepted Christ, were saved from their sins by the power of the gospel the first time we presented the gospel. And I remember them going out to town. These particular three guys headed out to town to go sell their cocoa beans. And they went and sold their cocoa beans and they came back and they stood in front of the church and they said, Brooks, we've got something incredible to share. God has worked in an incredible way. Oh, man, I'm so excited. And uh, so they get in front of the church body and they say, God blessed us so immensely. We had our cocoa beans. We put them on top of the PMV, the public motor vehicle. It was going to take them to town. It was going to take about half of their profits to pay for the PMV. And they rode all the way out to town. And when the PMV driver dropped them off, he wasn't looking and they were able to hide the cocoa bags and they never had to pay for the PMV. Praise God. Man, he provided for them so incredibly. And I'm hearing this. They're giving this in front of the church as a praise to God. And everybody in the church body, these newborn 40 or so believers, Amen! What an incredible God we have. And I'm going, we have so far to go. We have so far to go. To get them to the point to where they understand, you just robbed the man. You just robbed somebody. It was horrible. To get them to that point to where they're able... At the beginning, these are naive, untaught new believers. They are not ready to stand on their own. You're going to have to walk them through the basics. So critical books, critical books for the New Testament church, for that baby infant church, are number one, the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you go through some key, key things. And again, there are other things that you're going through, but you're not teaching this as an overview. You're teaching it word by word, verse by verse, going through the entire book. So you're getting the DNA of Acts to seep down into their pores, into this new baby church's pores. Number one, you're teaching them about the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. You're teaching them about the Holy Spirit. You're teaching them about the introduction to body life. What is our identity? What is our new allegiance? How do we handle unbelievers, people who should have understood this, but they didn't? They aren't believers. They were not saved. The expectation of suffering. There will be suffering that accompanies this message. In most of the last 3,100 language groups that are left on the face of the earth, as I said in the breakout session, they're the last ones for a reason. To get the gospel to those locations is going to be very difficult. And when people in those particular language groups change, their allegiances change to the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be pain involved. And to prepare them for that, to walk them through that truth in the book of Acts. And then the last one, the driving ambition of the church is to continue to take the gospel to new places. These are truths that are grounded in the book of Acts. You're not skim reading this. You're not hitting the highlights. You're letting the DNA of Peter, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, the early church in Jerusalem, Antioch, Berea, sink down into this new baby infant church that you've got going in that unreached language group. I firmly believe that if somebody does not understand Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's no way they understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've got to have that key component. What are you saved from? But as a new baby church, if you don't understand, if you can't commiserate with the sufferings that went on at the early church in Jerusalem, you don't have a baby church. You haven't taught them deeply enough until they can identify with what was going on in those early days. Man, our guys loved the early church, fell in love with the believers in Jerusalem as they happily had their possessions taken from them. As they walked away, as they shared everything. Man, the Yembe's coming up later. Nam nam de bariafom. Bariafom findo nam baus. We want to be like the Berea ones. We want to be like the ones from Berea that will listen and evaluate with eyes uncleared to look at the scriptures so that that DNA of the book of Acts sinks down into them. And the second major book that you want to push for, Romans. So many key truths in this book. You can't focus on them all. I realize that the founder of this pulpit. It took about 10 years to get through the book of Romans. We couldn't do that in Yembe Yembe. But to get through at least three points of justification and sanctification. You are justified by faith through grace. 
sanctification. This is what a believer looks like, and he will continue on this journey, on this trajectory for the rest of his life, justification and sanctification, no longer slaves to our flesh, and our lives being living sacrifices. We're living sacrifices to drive those truths home through the book of Romans. There's other things you're going to hit on. Those were the three primary ones that we went for. And then number two, they need, uh, they're going to be, need to have teaching and then they're going to need to be discipled. They need to be discipled. Remember that when you're working with UUPGs, unreached, unengaged people groups, there's usually no previous history of Christianity. There are no models to look for how a believer speaks, acts, or even thinks. You are the first interaction for what a believer looks like how he talks, how he treats his wife, how he raises his children, what kind of food he eats, where he eats, how he dresses. You're the first. All of these things they will learn from the team that presents the gospel. Disciplines such as reading through the Word of God, being a good reader. And one of the great questions that came out of our breakout session up there, what do you do with UUPGs that have no alphabet? They've never had a written language. A lot of them that you're going to be going to, that's their case. You develop one. You go to Radius and you learn how to do that. Scripture memorization. How to pray. These are unknown skills that the new believers need to be taught and discipled in. The other thing that you're trying to work in there in the early days is you're trying to involve them as early as possible. Involving them in the ministry in areas that they can be involved in, in bite-sized chunks where they can get involved, they can actually see and be participants of things. Whether that's... (coughs) public prayer, writing new songs, helping support a teaching point, giving them short points where they have worked already through it and they know and understand and they can articulate that point. Working with them prior to that. This is one of our guys holding up a map for the first time and knowing where to point. There's the country of Israel. and He's got his finger just right there and he's not showing it just to the people on his clan. He's showing it all the way around. All these tangible steps involving them as early as possible. Getting them involved in the process. Not too far, not too deep. Again, you're talking about newborn heretics. You don't want to be entrusting them with something unwittingly breeding confusion or worse, syncretism the mixing of two religions, their already existing religion, and then pasting Jesus on top. No. You want to make sure you're setting them up for success. And then you're leading them in new steps of faith. Probably the biggest step of faith in the early days is baptism. Uh, When we had new believers, this was a huge, huge one. There's no situation that we see in the New Testament where a believer does not get baptized and most as quickly as possible. When you have new believers, baptism is one of those steps. The Lord's Supper and baptism, the two sacraments that were left to us. This is the first baptism that we had in the village of Yembe Yembe. And this was not an easy one. Most of the believers or the unbelievers turned out for that day. And they were not happy about what was going to happen. The night before, they had made up new spears for the seven brave people, five men, two women, that were going to be baptized for the first time on the following day. Made up the spears, took a knife, etched each one of their names in these seven brand new spears. Come out of the water, you're going to catch this. That was our first experience heading into baptism, and the believers knew it. So the rest of the believers were on the bank holding them back so that they're brothers and sisters in Christ wouldn't catch these as they came out of the water. But before that happened, sitting down with the leaders, sitting down with the teachers and walking through, again, we'd already taught through the book of Acts. Now we're to the point where people are going, I want to get baptized. Excellent. How do you baptize somebody? Nobody would ever seen a baptism before. Taking them, we baptized, we took a papaya first and a huge bucket of water, dunking the papaya. This is what's going to happen. You want to put them all the way under. And so we brought them up. We had a volunteer come up and don't shove them down by their head. Well, if it works, we should push them down really deep. No, no, no. Just get them all the way wet. Bend them over backwards. Don't push them under like that. Walking them through those practical things. Two guys works better than one. You got one guy on the other side and then you can bring them back up. We're baptizing in a river. There's a little bit of a current there. 
and having them give their testimonies beforehand. Let them say why they want to be baptized. Have them give the explanation. Why is baptism so significant? These are practical steps. Again, you're walking these new believers through what it will be like for the first time. Many of them are experiencing these things. It's crucial in these early days to stand with them. Other things that you'll walk, uh, walk through with them for the first time. New marriages. Two believers for the first time getting married. Does he go into his father-in-law's house, throw the dowry on the floor, and run out before his father-in-law can throw a spear at him? Hope not. You're walking the line. What does a new marriage look like? From believers, followers of Christ. Death. When we bury the first believer. Back button, maybe. There it is. That was our first believer in the Yembe Yembe speaking world who died. What do we do at his funeral? Surely we don't bury him like unbelievers bury people. Walking them through that, how to treat unbelievers, how to treat fellow believers. These are the first steps, the first stage in getting these baby infant believers to the point to where they're starting to walk, maybe crawl through that initial time. Then the second stage, maturing believers. You're taking the time to teach them thoroughly through foundational truths of the gospel. Critical books for maturing believers that you need to teach through. And again, taking the time, not going too fast, letting these books sink down the implications of them to sink into the church's DNA. Number one, Galatians. Identifying false gospels and false teachers. Yes, there is such a thing as a false gospel. Not everyone who says with their lips, Lord, Lord, is a follower of Christ identifying what is a false gospel and what a false teacher looks like. The wolves will come. They will come. How ready will that church be when they do? Works. A works-based salvation and how that works itself out. Salvation by grace through faith. Walking through the implications of that in the book of Galatians. Ephesians, chosen in Christ before the world began, God's sovereignty that He looked down through history and He chose believers. Unity in the body, how the body of Christ works as a unit, the hands, the feet, the fingers. Some are toes, some are lips, some are arms. And then the big one, family life. Woo! How does marriage change? How does parenting change when the gospel starts to come in there? Don't go too fast. Act things out. Teach. Again, from a new perspective, spend enough time with them to judge whether they're able to get this stuff. We taught on parenting, and then we taught on marriage. And I remember teaching on uh, marriage, and we got where we were teaching through the men's part, then we got to the women's part. We were teaching what a godly wife looks like and how a godly wife conducts herself. And we talked initially about, okay, men like to fight with what? When they fight, and this is over in a tribal context, men fight with their hands. That's what men fight with. And so then we got up, okay, what do women fight with typically? These are... Examples from across the world. And I'm thinking they're going to say, with their mouth, with their tongues, whatever. One of the women gets up and she goes, with bush knives, with bush knives. We fight with bush knives. <laughs> no, it's not bush knives. She sits down. Next lady stands up, with axes. We fight with axes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now we fight with our tongues and we walk through what a biblical marriage looks like. This is why you see Nina and I, when we talk, you see how I speak to her. You see how my wife treats me. You see these principles lived out. You're living models for the first time as you teach these passages. You, the teacher, you're the first model that they see. And teaching the Yembis how to parent their children wisely, how to discipline. This is what a paddle looks like. For my son, who was three years old when we moved into the Yembi Yembi context, grew up there all the way till he was 16. And for them... And we would bring Bo up, and he would, and he's just like, oh, here we go again. And so my son's name is Bo, and we bring him up, and here's the paddle. And God has this incredible, he designed our bodies. There's this cushion right back here. You don't hit him in the head. You don't take that. No, no, are you sure? I'm pretty positive. <laughs> the backside, you got this, man, or this God-made cushion there, and that's how you discipline a child. And then seeing everyone around the village with these modeled paddles that look exactly like Bo's. It was unbelievable. Walking through the tribe, seeing them everywhere. You're walking them through these examples piece by piece. Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians. How to deal with fallen believers and those claiming to be believers but not following Christ. 
church discipline. What do we do when people walk away who claim to be believers and they're living in blatant sin? Surely you must address that. Suffering being a normal expectation, again, we're hitting that one. What the gathering of believers should and should not look like in practice. Spiritual gifts, resurrection from the dead. Imagine reading this for the first time without somebody to lead you through it. 1 Corinthians 15:42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Taking time, walking them through these elementary truths. You will get new bodies. That doesn't mean a lot to our culture where plastic surgery and kombucha diets and whatever help to lengthen and stretch out our faces and everything else. For the tribal person, for the person in these, you get new bodies. Those of you that have lost toes sharpening canoes, those of you that have axe marks, those of you that have been nailed by crocodiles a couple times, you get new bodies. You're raised immortal to walk through those principles, what it will be like. Man, the Yembies, you know what the Yembies daydream about on a regular basis? What it will be like in heaven. What will it be like in heaven? Oh, I'll see so-and-so again. We'll see Lawrence. We'll see Pops Lau. He won't have that missing finger anymore. The way that he talked because his mom hit him across the jaw and broke his jaw when he was young, he won't talk that way. He'll talk so clearly. Think of the food that will be there. We'll never have to go to the garden again. To give them that vision, what will it be like when we have raised bodies, raised gloriously? Teach them through that. Other key books for the maturing church, First John. You get a different author than Paul. Get somebody in there besides Paul so that you can walk through those things. Philippians, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Love each other with humility that Christ showed. James, people who love Jesus, Follow his commands. Pretty simple. People who love Jesus, obey his commands. First Thessalonians and Revelation, completing the narrative from Patmos. Now we're going forward. We're going forward to the future, past our time. And responsible church planners, listen to this one, responsible church planners, from Patmos, take the time to walk them through church history. What happened after that that brought us to 2018? What were the significant events? What did the early church go through? The 3rd century, in the 4th century, in the 5th century, bring them up to speed. You don't have to spend a year on it, but bring them up to speed. Let them see the continuity of the body of Christ all the way up to the present day. And then number two, in the maturing church, helping them live lives consistent with the gospel. This passage in Galatians, I think, speaks to this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas being Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For there were certain men that came from James who he was, uh, he came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you then a Jew live like a Gentile, not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? But when I saw that his conduct was not in step with what? He wasn't obeying? It wasn't in step with the gospel. He wasn't living a life that was in step with the gospel. Remember the core of what you're driving at is not behavior modification. You're not trying to get them to obey their way to be better people or even obey their way into salvation. That's not the goal. The goal is to live a life that is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everything points back to that. There's new believers dead and separated from God, enemy of the king before they understood, doomed to hell and now a son grafted in a new branch, the new life, the new allegiances, hope and promise of the future glory. All that springs from a clear understanding of the gospel. The Yembe believers wrestled with different things that we won't wrestle with here. Women not eating pig meat when pregnant so that their husbands would be successful hunters. Let's bring that in line with the gospel. Who controls the pigs? Who controls pregnancy? 
Is it the spirits that are out there? So that if you give your wife, your pregnant wife, some pig meat, your pig hunting advantages are going to be gone? Fear when the moon was not out because the spirits of the dead move more often then. Living or looking for the shaman, the glass man, the healer when the sickness or crop failures come about. Rituals for when the rain doesn't come. People dying or a job is being sought or a host of other things. Bringing all of those things in line with the gospel. Give your wives pig meat. Stop going to the shaman. No, no, no. Don't teach them to obey. Teach them to bring their life in line with the clarity of the gospel. That's the only way you will see long-term change past your departure. It may happen while you're there. When you leave, what will happen then? For nearly every one of the believers, the vestiges of their past had to be pointed out in contrast to the gospel. Let me put a little plug in here for contrast of teaching. Contrast of teaching is one of these key, key things that I believe a lot of people stumble on. Many of the people groups that are still unreached are concrete relational learners. The missionaries should never assume that the implications of the gospel message are clearly understood. You have to lay those implications out in crystal clear detail. You have to drive into, this is what it means to be a Yembi Yembi follower of Christ. This is what a follower of Christ does. These are the things in his life that he's going to have to grow in. And it won't be the same things that new followers of Christ in San Diego deal with, in Minneapolis deal with, in Davenport deal with. They'll be radically different. But to apply the gospel in those settings by contrastive teaching. This is the gospel. This is what your ancestors taught you. What will you believe? You bring those two into conflict. Intentional conflict. But this assumes two things. It assumes, number one, that you knew their culture well enough to actually know those things. And you knew the language at a good enough level that you could handle question and answer. You could forcefully present, teach, argue, fight for finer points that will not come just from a six-month understanding of the gospel. Dominant worldview, and I said this in our session, in the breakout session that we had about language and culture. The dominant worldview, the dominant religion in our day and age is not Islam. It's not Christianity. It's not Buddhism. It's not Hinduism. The dominant world religion in our day and age is syncretism. The mixing of two religions. And unfortunately, many gospel ambassadors, people who love Jesus, who care about the people that they're going to, unwittingly have stepped in and have created syncretism because they didn't know the language and culture that they were speaking into well enough. And so they presented something and Jesus became one of the gods. Jesus became one of the ones that they looked to to control their life. But he didn't become the God and everything else becoming secondary. Missionaries don't know the language and culture of the people group that they're working with before sharing the gospel. Syncretism is virtually guaranteed. To understand somebody's language, to speak, and to have taken the time to listen before you speak. Taken the time to learn. Third, developing teachers and leaders. Walking them clearly through the marks of an elder a deacon, training them in these things, getting them to the point. Critical books that we need to develop for this are First Timothy. You identify false teachers and false gospel again. You talk through the daily life of a Christian. The qualifications of an elder and deacon. You're not looking for perfection. You're not looking for perfect people that have fully attained. You're looking for a life that's exhibiting these qualities and they're growing. They're growing in the weaker areas. Tricky things that can come up when you're starting to look at discipling elders and deacons and what that looks like. Number one, how do you handle cultures where they've had multiple wives before they were saved? How do you lay hands on a guy? Can you lay hands on a guy who had two wives before he was saved? He knew nothing of the gospel. Now he's come to Christ. He's got two wives. He's automatically disqualified. Those are tricky. Most of the first generation of teachers or leaders have a sexual history with many of the members of the church. How do you walk through that? He knows who he's teaching to. 
This isn't common in our situation, but for you UPGs, hearing the gospel for the first time, it can be challenging. What happens if you have a qualified man that cannot read or is a very poor reader? Some of the most dynamic and zealous leaders are usually the younger men, recently saved. How do you work with them when they can teach and understand circles around the older men in the congregation? These are tricky issues that each situation you're going to have to work through these key, key things. If you're going to see 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 leaders raised up, you're going to have to walk the path of some of these tricky things. The other book to teach through, 2 Timothy, Marks of a Faithful Man, Warnings Against Things That Take Leaders Down. Be specific. In Yembi Yembi, we had no cell phones, we had no... DVDs, we had no electricity, we were out in the boonies. The last three years that we, came, we were in there, the cell phone towers made their way in. Guess what was the first thing the Yembe started? They had cell phones, and all of a sudden pornography became an issue. Hadn't addressed it to that point. We had to dive into that detail. An elder is the husband of one wife. One wife. That means we don't look at these things. That means you are disqualified as you head into these types of situations if that's in your background. Warnings against things that take leaders down in the life to come. Other books that you're going to want to go through at this stage. Hebrews, Jesus being the perfect priest and heroes of the faith, walking them through the heroes that walked away from their families, their homes, as they moved forward. 1 Thessalonians, the marks of a good church. Contrast 1 Thessalonians with Corinthians, the two different models. You've got Corinthians, which was full of all sorts of blunders, errors. And then the Thessalonians. Praise God, we have an example that God gave us from the Thessalonian church and what they were doing. And you're looking to disciple key men and teach them how to disciple others. <clears throat> At this point in time, sorry, that went a little fast. There you go. Discipling key men and teaching them how to disciple others. You're discipling them, but the funnel is shrinking. You're getting smaller and smaller. When you first start out, everyone is the potential, has the potential to be saved, and so you're investing widely. You're sowing seed widely. Once you have believers, that funnel shrinks down to the people that have understood the gospel message and have been saved. After that, it shrinks down even further, and you start to get to those leaders, and you're spending more time with them. You're investing more with them. You don't have the time to spend with the other guys that haven't made it into that smaller end of the funnel. We see this in two ways. Jesus having 72, then 12, and actually three that he really poured into, and Paul having many people that he poured into, but Titus, Timothy, and Silas as trusted disciples. Many people that he invested in. Read the last chapter of the book of Romans, but specifically key leaders that he spent extra time with, that he invested heavily. By this time, the leaders have taken over a lot of the teaching. They're starting to function in the roles of elders and deacons even though they haven't yet been formally named. Have them function in those roles before you name them as elders and deacons. It should be to the point to where everyone, when you put it out there to the church, who should we name as elders? It's automatic. Well, yeah, that guy's been doing these things. He's been doing these things. He's been walking this path for the last year and a half. You're beginning to take trips out of the location to see how the church handles your absence and how the leaders handle things when you're away. When you travel, you're taking trips and you're taking them with you. This was, oh, that's not it. There it is. <coughs> Excuse me. This was a trip to a neighboring uh, people group and taking the elders in training on this trip. Two things the Yembies are scared to death of. Airplanes and sharks. They've never seen a shark in their life, but they've heard a lot of stories about them. These big fish that actually search for human beings. They like the taste of human meat. It's not true at all, but that's what they believe. Searching for these things. And so we're going to go to this particular people group that's being looked at. They haven't even gotten the gospel yet, but we're going to go look at it. And we're going to take some of our church elders with, or I'm going to go. So I'm taking them with me on this trip. Yembe's scared out of their mind, 80 miles off the ocean. We get to the airplane and their wives coming praying over them, God, if you have him going by the teeth of a big shark, I'm good with your will being done, but please bring my husband back. And just praying these fervent prayers and taking these guys with you on these trips so they get to see you. This trip was a disaster. 
The boat, man, the waves, oh my goodness. I, I have a new appreciation for what Paul went through during the shipwreck. We didn't get shipwrecked, but it's going up these faces. And the Yembis, most of them, this is their first interaction with the ocean. And them watching you, and you watching them as they go through this, seeing them outside of the environment, how do they handle themselves? When they get the opportunity to speak up, when they have to live in houses, the people group that we went to on this visit, they build houses. The Yembis, their houses have posts about this big. They've got about 16 posts, massive houses. At night, in the day, you spend your time in your house if you're wanting to relax. This people group that we went to see, their houses are built on these twigs. And they weave these palm fronds and they sit on the dirt. Oh my goodness, revolting. That's where the dogs poo. That's what the Yembis are saying. That's where the dogs go to the bathroom. Why would we sit there? How do they handle that? seeing their character, take them on these trips, evaluate their character in new situations. You're molding and shaping them for the time when you leave and some of them take the gospel someplace where they have palm fronds, where they have small houses. You're readying them for that occasion. And then the recognition of leaders and the withdrawal of the church planner. This is the last stage getting them to that point to where you're recognizing leaders, you're recognizing teachers, you're seeing these guys and they've been molded. This has taken years. This will take a long period of time. The public recognition of these guys, naming of qualified leaders. Acts 14.21 says this, They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of converts. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Don't lay hands on them too early. Don't lay hands on them too early until they've exhibited the marks of a New Testament elder and deacon. It'll harm the credibility of your church. It'll harm the credibility of the gospel. You put those guys in charge, I've seen church plants. I've gone to different visits. Those guys got in charge, and as soon as the missionary left, the credibility of the church went down the drain. Speed is a killer when you're raising up church elders. Have they shown the marks of humility? Have they done the things that mark them to be a church elder? Our process for church eldership takes about two years. You teach the children first, the kids who can't sit straight, the kids who are calling to the dogs as you're telling the story, as you're teaching through the scriptures. You teach the children, then you teach the smaller groups, and you're being discipled by an already existing elder and deacon. And then finally, you work your way to where you do one point. The main teacher is getting up and he's speaking out a particular passage. You come up and you help him and you teach one point. Then you sit down and you work through this process to where you're ready. You've shown the marks of humility and getting them to that point. But when they're ready, if they've been faithful in the smaller things, lay hands on them and recognize them as part of the church body and throw a big party. These are huge days that everyone in the church knows and has been praying for since they heard the teaching on 1 Timothy. They've looked forward to these things. This isn't some Western construct that is unique to us in the last five centuries. Don't put the Western label on this. I've heard that from recent church planning endeavors. That's a Western thing. You put too much on it. That's, that's something that, that we do in America, but it's, it's different over here. No, this is a God-ordained method of formally recognizing leaders, teachers, and evangelists that will guide the body of Christ. And for the cross-cultural church planner, this is a watershed moment when the founders take a back seat, step away, and the next generation steps up to lead. Don't miss the significance of this. And then finally, leaving when it's time to go. When you've completed the New Testament translation, this was our final day when we completed the New Testament translation. You've got something to where they can hang on to the Word of God in their language. They've been taught and discipled through these key books. They've watched you teach. They've gone on trips with you. They've seen your character. They've seen your marriage. They've seen your parenting. You've walked them through all these things. They've seen you fail. You've 
repented in front of the church. They've seen you do things that you're not proud of and they've watched you grow and you've watched them grow and you've watched them stumble. And now it's time to step away physically. When you've completed these things and they're ready, the markers have to be in place, but when it's time for the church's benefit, you need to depart. Planting churches is like growing kids. It's really easy to make a baby. It's pretty hard to get him from the point to where he's in your hands and he's mature and he's ready to step away. He's ready to head off to college. I got a son who's going through his senior year next year. I'm going through my mind what I have taught him. Can he walk mentally from Adam to Solomon? Can he walk through the exile? Can he walk through the gospel? Can he defend the gospel against an atheist professor that he will most likely be sitting under? Can he do these things? Is he ready? Fear and trepidation. I've got one year left with him. But by God's grace, he'll be ready. And then as he heads off to college, I don't sever the ties. See ya. We'll never be a part of it again. Now we revisit, we come back. The founder of the church, the one who started this church plant, has a unique voice that can speak to the leaders in other ways in other, that other people can't. A wise older church planter took me aside in our last months there and he said this, the churches that do the best are the ones where the missionaries visit regularly. Go back and check. Go back and check. Go back and support. Go back and exhort. Go back and rebuke. Go back and spend time with them. This is a biblical thing. Acts 15.36 says this, So sometime later Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. 2 Corinthians 12.14 Now I am ready to visit you for the third time and I will not be a burden to you because I want, because what I want is not your possessions but you. 2 John 12. I have much to write you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that your joy may be complete. Visit the churches that you've planted. We've promised the Yembe Yembes we will come back until we cannot physically get on the airplane again. Until we can't get on that airplane, we'll come back and visit. This is my last trip into Yembe. This was last month. Heading back in there, this is the elders and the deacons. These are the disciples of the elders of the deacons, and these are their disciples getting those guys ready, walking them through, heading back on regular occasions, being a part of their lives, seeing how their marriages are doing. Tell me how your fellow elders are getting on. Tell me what the pitfalls have been this last year. Tell me what the church has gone through. What are the books that you guys have taught through? What are the books you're getting ready to teach in? How healthy is the church? Tell me why. What are the people that you're getting ready to send out? Where are you sending them? You've mentored them. You've discipled them. You've taught them all this way to that point. Go back and check on them. Be that guy. I want to conclude with this. I think this quote is pretty accurate. Paul Washer says this, It's a miracle of God if one self-sustaining cross-cultural New Testament church is planted in 10 years. It's a miracle of God if it happens in 10 years. If it happens in weeks, Question the value of what you've got. Question it. Rapid church development, short cycle church planting, movements, speed. It's great with Apple. It's great with McDonald's. It's not so great with the gospel. Speed kills when it comes to the gospel. It's a miracle of God. I think this is 100% accurate if it takes 10 years and you have a self-sustaining, self-led New Testament church. I would say that's entirely correct. Considering the obstacles for getting to UUPGs, the languages, the business platform, the visas that are going to be necessary, the difficulty of getting in there, and then taking them from no knowledge up to the point to where they're ready to stand on their own, 10 years is a miracle. Praise God, it can be done. Praise God, His Spirit works through the teacher, through the evangelist, through the missionary, but it's a miracle. Know, church pastors, missions pastors, what your members are doing. Know what the expectations that you have for them are and hold their feet to the fire. That same board in Canada that I was up there giving them advice on what they should invest in missiologically, that board... Praise God when you hear of hundreds of churches starting 
to spontaneously come out of India, when you hear of thousands of churches moving through China, praise God and verify. Praise God and verify. Spend the money, fly over, visit three of them. Fly over, I want to meet three of the church leaders. I want to meet these guys. Getting to the point to where we verify these things. Remember, methodologies and missiologies are ultimately theologies. Missiologies and methodologies are theologies. These aren't coming out of thin air. They're coming out of an underpinning, a theology that already exists. What did your church invest in that member? He will export that. Hold his feet to the fire. Export good theology because good theology results in good methodology. And the converse is true as well. What someone believes about Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and the church plays itself out in the context of the field. May God find us faithful in the churches that we plant that they would last well past our days. When I'm dead and gone, I pray that church is just humming along. I pray that the Yembi Yembis, to the next generation, they hold these truths. That this church isn't a short cycle church. This church is built for the long run. It will outlast those elders. They will be dead and gone, and God's church will still stand. Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you loved the church, that you gave evangelists, teachers, pastors, apostles to guide her. You love the Lord, or you love the church, Lord Jesus. This is the tool that you have ordained to use in these days. How we speak about the church. How we plant the church matters greatly to you. We pray that we would raise up strong churches, especially as we go to these people groups that this is their first interaction with the gospel, that we would plant for the long term. We would plant anticipating these churches will live on for generations. Lord, we would lay that foundation thick. We would lay it strong so that your name would be known and that church would glorify you for generations to come. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Thank you for how it teaches us, it guides us, it rebukes us. It spurs us on to be better men and women, better tools in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.
Hopefully it was clear.